Hey, Film Files, what's happening? Happy Tuesday, everybody. You are ours for the next hour. I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Stuart Randolph. I'm Ben Snowden. And tonight, our feature presentation is, of course, The Fountain, but it's all sorts of movies today. I hope you'll stick with us. This is Movie Show Theater. In a world where movies are everywhere, these heroes will make sense of some of the world's strongest films. Jimmy, Ben, and Stuart. This is Movie Show Theater. So tonight is The Fountain, which stars, of course, Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz, who, actually, I, I didn't know that she was married to Daniel Craig. Yes. That He's a very, very lucky man. That is, that's just a good-looking couple. It is a good-looking couple. And Darren Aronofsky, at one point. Daniel Craig was married to Darren Aronofsky? Yeah. That is hot. They totally made genius-slash-attractive-slash-awesome spy babies. Right. Right. So uh, then I also found out, because that got me wondering, because I know that there's all sorts of uh, celebrities from across the board that you didn't realize, but Clark Gregg and Jennifer Grey, that's an interesting couple. Clark Gregg from uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Marvel movies. Oh, yes. Yes, kinda, yes, 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 yes. Kind yeah. of unexpected. Yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson, the director of uh, Magnolia and Boogie Nights, is married to Maya Rudolph. That's weird. That's a weird one. That is a weird one. Yeah. You remember the kid from Super Troopers that was in the back of the police car, the famous Snozberries kid? No, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's married to uh, Anna Hendricks from Mad Men. Really? Which the is, redhead? Yeah. Ooh. Which is, which is pretty interesting. That is well, I mean, if you consider the fact, I mean, you can go way back with these kinds of relationships, but uh, the one that always comes to mind with me is like Tom Green and marrying, you know, Drew Barrymore. Yeah, that was the, weird. They're just all these bizarre celebrity relationships, and you feel like their agents set them up. Yeah, I'm so glad that Tom Green fell bit. off the I map. would agree. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so we do The Fountain. It's, the Fountain, uh, yeah. From 2006, it's uh, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Not heavily influenced by Tom Green. No. <laughs> Not even a little tiny bit, no. No, th- this one had nothing to do no with it. No funny at all in this can, movie. The only thing I can think of is Not maybe... Not even a little tiny bit of funny. They filmed it in Canada mostly, and Tom Green's from Canada. Very loose associations. Yeah, that's true. Oh, actually, real quick, speaking of funny, the uh, American Ultra movie that just came out on Friday, did you see the, the trailer for it? It's the it's the uh, one with Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart, and he's like the stoner... Oh, 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 where Store he, clerk. like, yes, 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 where he, like, fli- a switch gets flipped in his head and he gets turned on and he's, like, a super spy or super kick-butt something yeah. or another, yeah. Yeah, it kind of drives me crazy because every ten years the story gets uh, turned around just a teeny bit, like, um, Long Kiss Goodnight. Right, right, um, right, right. The exact same thing with Basically. Gina Davis, yep, which Gina I Davis. liked more, and then— I did, too. Sam ten, Jackson. And then ten years later they did A History of Violence. Mm-hmm. With Vigo, and even that was good, and that was a Cronenberg film, which yep. was like the most normal, non-weird David true, Cronenberg yeah. movie. Yeah, It was pretty straightforward for him. I mean, uh, very straightforward, yeah. I mean, for him. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see about all that. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, all right. Fountain. Darren Aronofsky, always been one of my favorites. He doesn't just spit out movies because of obligation or because you studio contract. Every film that he puts out is 
seems like a very close and very personal tale to him, and this is certainly no exception. And this this film definitely marked a stylistic departure for him. Even though with the subject matter, it's still about obsession, like Pi was, like uh, Requiem for a Dream was about. I mean, the way he uses obsession in three very different ways through his first three films shows his diversity as a filmmaker, especially when, if you had seen this film and didn't know the director... Um, at this point in time in 2006, you wouldn't say, oh, yes, that's definitely Darren Aronofsky. So this, to me, I think marks his evolution um, as a filmmaker or his 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 timeline, um, his first progression, his first big progression into something different to show his diversity, you know, because after uh, – did he do The Wrestler after this? Yeah, yeah. Wrestler, Once wrestler was, was the fire. two years later. Yeah. And four years before he did The Fountain was Requiem for a Dream, which is – an, right. an incredible film all in its own, but from Pi to obviously The Fountain to The Wrestler and Black Swan, I thought was fantastic. Um, any one of his movies you could do a 90-minute documentary on because so much goes behind it. And we'll get deeper than this in a minute, but um, the all of the scenes in his tree bubble yeah, that he decided to opt out of CGI and use macro photography and using chemical reactions in a Petri dish mm-hmm. um, just to keep it kind of based in reality, I thought was a pretty pretty incredible choice in a day where it's just so easy to fill in with CGI. And even in 2006, you could have done it, and it might have looked a little more you know, smoother or sterile, but I mean, I think just the fact that you would use this very strange technique. And not, not too many people know it. I mean, if you watch a documentary on it, you'll find out. But they, he didn't parade that in front of the film like, look how hipster I am. I used, you know, chemical reactions in a Petri dish. Like, that's that's incredible. I think a lot of it, too, was to save money because if you look at the production history of this film, which is a disaster, I mean, they had to can the film because it was originally supposed to star Brad Pitt, and it was supposed to be like this, you know, $100 million production. He left, then it got canned completely, came back. They agreed upon a $70 million production, and the studio said, no, we can't do that. So they had to scale it down again by half, and it ended up being a $35 million production. I think some of the cuts ultimately ended up helping this movie. Like um, the opening scene where you have these three conquistadors and they're wandering into this trap, this cave with Mayans. Uh, At some point, there was originally supposed to be a huge battle a la Lord of the Rings, but then it got taken down to probably about 30 people and all live actors. So I think some of it was necessity and some of it was uh, Aronofsky as a director saying, you know, this fits more with the story. A big battle doesn't really reflect one of the protagonist's main mental battles yeah and i i would don't even i don't think that's really even necessary i mean at 96 minutes this movie is i don't think lacking anything um and i mean a battle scene i guess would have been kind of cool it would have been right around the time the last lord of the rings film came yeah, out. it would have been out of place yeah it would have been dr- drastically out of place for this particular film i just i think the the limited violence that they did have in it was just fine it didn't need anything else than what it had and and quite frankly, it was it, the the three different intertwining stories that, of course, were all the one story. But um, it made it confusing enough without throwing in a, a huge, huge battle that would have definitely seemed out of place. Yeah. So this movie is um, 
has a pretty straightforward plot. It's a little bit abstract in that every, you know, different people that watch this will have a different idea of of this interpretation. So, you know, across the board, there's some online reviews and, and critics that we'll read here in a minute. But it, it's my understanding that there's the only reality in this movie is present Tom. And past Tom is is Izzy's book. Future Tom definitely is not real. Future Tom is, is well, Future Tom is a thought, I think. Future yeah. Tom is an idea. Whereas present Tom, the the Dr. Creo, if you will, present Tom is, is living and trying to deal with the death of his wife. And, uh, yeah, I was confused by this film. I'll be honest with you. The first time I saw this several years ago, I was completely confused by it. And I walked away from it going, hmm, I probably won't ever watch that again. I was not blown away by it. I, I mean, it's not a bad film. It's worth a watch. It's worth, you know. But again, if you, if you're, you, he opens the film with future Tom in one of the strangest situations, you know. I mean, because it goes right from the conquistador to the, the bald Hugh Jackman and the um, meditation position floating in what appears to be outer space or something. And then there's no explanation for the first 10 minutes of what exactly is going on until you get to kind of that little flashback moment where he keeps, you know, she keeps interrupting, uh, you know, Rachel Weiss's character. Um, uh, Izzy keeps interrupting him in the middle of doing his uh, research and it, it repeats over and over and over and over again until we realize, oh, that this is a memory. This is something that he's trying to come to grips with. He and in, he may, may may not have actually cared, may not have actually had enough time with his wife. And the time that he did have, he spent trying to find a cure for her disease rather than appreciating her while she was there. And I think that in and of itself becomes the central problem that he's dealing with more than finding a cure i mean that was my thought i mean it's a lack of time it's the ability to be with somebody while they're there with you rather than thinking for the future and trying to decide rather than trying to change a future that's almost foregone at this point even though you know his research does pan out it does end up spoiler 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 he finds a cure for whatever this is it does help it's too late for his wife I mean, it's just plain too late for Izzy, and and that's, you know, again, it's spend the time with your loved ones while you have the opportunity, and don't worry about the future so much, I guess, is what I took away from it in the end. Yeah. Well, the one thing I didn't pick up on the first time I watched this is that, you know, he, instead of spending time with Izzy a lot, he's torn from her, and he... You know, runs the laboratory because, you know, it's mentioned at least 12 times, I'm here for her. But he's not really there for her. He's here for himself because he is not ready to accept the fact that she's going to die. I mean, she's ready from the very beginning of the movie, and he can't come to terms with the fact that he's going to lose her. And so he, as a coping mechanism, he's like trying to beat the clock, or he calls death a disease. And, you know, I think that's kind of symbolic of him not being able to handle the inevitable well i I, no, i would agree with that 100 percent. and you know go ahead ben oh i was just going to say and and that's kind of how these three intertwining tenses you know past present and future intertwine up till the end so you have you know the past tense which i'd also interpreted as part of the book you have tom as a conquistador you have izzy as queen isabel and she's saying to tom 
you need to find the tree of life. You need to give me immortality. So he actually does find that, but then you go to the present, and he's pretty much doing the same thing in reality. It's just a different perspective. Now, instead of a conquistador, Tom is a neuroscientist using what could be the same tree could very, um, yeah. to try to help his wife, even though he doesn't really help her. Um, he could help others, but you see that, once again, it goes back to obsession. He's obsessed, obsessed, obsessed with saving his wife, but he's not necessarily there for her all the time. He does have his redeeming moments like the bathtub, and he can tell a lot of times that he's just being a gigantic jerk. Mm-hmm. Like, And I, I think, too, when you look at how these uh, two tenses interact with the future, which I interpreted as, you know, this is Tom or Tommy finally coping with this loss and accepting that his wife has died and passed on, possibly become something more beautiful, and that he someday will die himself. What what caught me as strange is that the movie has all of these intertwining philosophies, but uh, Aronofsky is known to be hardcore Christian, but this came off as a very Buddhist philosophy. I mean, it's really with, much so, very uh, much so. With the ending of the film, you yeah. have, um, let's call him astronaut. Mm-hmm. Astronaut yeah. Tom, yeah, uh, Astro. bald, bald astronaut Tom is in the lotus position, pretty much meditating, and he uh, explodes with the supernova, which I think is the best part of the film, especially with the way the score works with it. It's almost like he's accepted in a future life. Hey, this is the cycle of suffering, and I'm giving up. Um, you know this this obsession with death and trying to conquer it because it's inevitable. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, as I was watching that last that last scene you just mentioned, Ben, it, it was hearkening back to two thousand one, a space odyssey, a little yeah. bit. Kind of the the visuals and the and the music working together to create a a mood and a a um, an atmosphere to well to to really express a certain sort of thought. And I, I thought it was interesting, very interesting. Um, just the just the 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 relationship between future you know, astronaut Tom, if you will, and the tree, and of course he's seeing visions of Izzy the entire time that he's there, and the tattooing of himself using the bark and the ink and 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 everything else from the tree, and and it just was very. It was very kind of. I mean, it it was. It reminded me of a bad trip almost. I mean, <laughs> just wow. Yeah. And then, and then you know, uh, I almost neglected to mention that before that you have the scene where in the past Conquistador Tom has uh, confronted the Mayan priest. So you have the Conquistador who has found the Tree of Life. And he's pretty much greedy like the neuroscientist Tom is. And he isn't really content with just healing a wound with the Tree of Life. He drinks from the Tree of Life and flowers spring from him. So he dies and gives birth to new creation, which also goes back to um, Moses Morales, the Mayan oh, guy yeah, that Mark he Morales, was talking yeah. about. So I can, I can appreciate when somebody writes... Uh, a script that they have all these things intertwining and you know you have these elements where at the end of the film there's something at the middle or beginning um, that's touched upon again that I think that was a really really nice touch just to show that he had really accepted you know all across the board past present and future uh, that he will die someday yeah it was almost like a variation or some sort of nod to reincarnation and you mentioned his Religious background. I know that he's Jewish. I feel like hardcore Christian and Requiem for a Dream are not a pairing that I would that I would fit. But I've never really heard him talk about his religious background. Yeah. But I know that he 
does a lot of combination and mashing of, you know, folklore and mythology. And I won't say fact because I wouldn't, you know, the Bible is if it's fact to you, that's fine. But yeah, I don't know. It's just I don't know. You know, it's interesting because with this particular film, I, I think there's almost too much for just the regular everyday film goer to to take in on the first go and to understand and to try and put the three together and to understand that they're all actually one story and it's just the different time periods and 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 I think he he was trying to be almost too creative with with how the plot runs and how the storyline goes and it and it if you're not really paying attention you're going to lose the thread fairly easily until you you realize that oh this is just a story and i'm not saying that condescendingly necessarily but it is just a story of a man trying to save his wife by any means necessary and and it comes down to a pure true love story but it then but it, but i think ben hit on it a second ago where he's being very selfish in the, how he's going about it he is more afraid to lose her than he is to be with her and and he's more afraid to be with her now than he is the I, I it just the thought of losing her is driving him so horribly that he loses her already he's lost her already at at some point and you see that in that in that scene where he turns to her and goes no you know leave me alone i'm you know the one that he keeps coming back to in his own memories mm-hmm. until he finally realizes what it is that he's doing at that point and then he whether he changes it or whether he changes how he responds or whether it's just in his own mind, his own memory that he's changing, he does end up running after her into the snow and does go for a walk with her in the snow. And, and maybe that's wishful thinking on his part. Maybe that's what he wanted to do but afterwards but realized that he could never do it again. And, and I think that that, in a lot of ways, the the director really confuses the the watcher because of those little things, because of those repetitious things, because of the the there were some jumps in there between one scene to the next that I just I'm like okay, well I just don't understand this necessarily. Yeah, and maybe and you know visually speaking, the film was brilliantly filmed. You know, I mean it's visually stunning. There's no doubt in my mind that he, he that he had a vision in mind while he was doing this, and he I think he probably succeeded with that vision in a lot of ways. But again, visually speaking, watching something this visually great. If the story doesn't capture you, if the story doesn't hold you from the get-go, then it's hard to appreciate even that. And and I'll be honest, it really didn't capture me that much. Even though I love Hugh Jackman, even though I love Rachel Weisz, it, it, those two actors, it, uh, overall, most of their films are just wonderful. Mm-hmm. They're just wonderful films. And, and I love them it, it individually and, and together. Well, i got to be honest, I have a huge crush on Rachel, Rachel Weisz. I mean, she's just gorgeous, personally. I think so, anyway. But, um, and Lynn, my wife Lynn, was just like, yeah, yeah, Hugh Jackman's the same way. <laughs> he, mm-hmm. He's a beautiful man, too. But, uh, but again, it, it, even those things aside, it was just hard for, to, for me to, to, to get into the film and appreciate it maybe for what it was supposed to be. Yeah, I think he, he was interviewed and he called, he wanted people to perceive it as a Rubik's Cube and that there's more than one way to put the story together. There's more than one way to look at it. And I think there's definitely a large part of movie watchers who like to be tested and like to use their head and and think and put it together. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's certain elements that, yeah, you get right away. And then, you know, 
a, a lot of it is like, well, whether you know, I remember when the movie first came out, the trailer that got released, the way that it was marketed is that these two people in, you know, a thousand years ago, um, drank from the tree of life and they were in love and they were right. immortal and they, yeah. you they know, were continuing it was one long right, linear one long story. story. Yeah. And the first time I watched it, it wasn't until like 40 minutes in that I'm like, oh, this is okay, not I the was movie. tricked. Yeah, this is not the movie that they sold me. So yeah. The only thing I didn't like was how they repeated the opening battle scene again later in the film. I didn't really think there was any need for that. I really, really like this film, and it, it's arguably my favorite Aronofsky film just because I, I feel like he does a good job of challenging the viewer. But I can also see, to Jimmy and Stu's point, why um, this might be a head-scratcher for the viewing public, which it, it showed at the box office. I mean, this movie bombed. I mean... Uh, I think it ended up making what, like ten million dollars, yeah, and it was a not a lot, a yeah. thirty-five million dollar film. I mean, I personally, as somebody who is in marketing, wouldn't know how to market this film to a wide audience just because I know it's a love story. But if you say it's a love story, does that mean you're also taking away from? Uh, the sci-fi aspects. Would you uh, would you market it like Jupiter Ascending, which also mm-hmm. bombed? <laughs> but different films. But Jupiter but still... Ascending was, it, it, while again visually stunning, was not a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> it was just a bad movie. This I would not say is a bad movie. I think that it it just. It, it lacked something that would was there meant to grab the audience. It just for whatever reason, there was just no hook that was going to grab a hold of you and hold you there and rivet you to the screen necessarily. Yeah, because while it is a, a a love story and it does take place in present day, it's also a period piece. It could also be science fiction. It could also be a time travel movie. But if you watch it with any of those other ideas in mind, you're going to be disappointed because it's not a science fiction movie. I was just going to say, it piece. is not really a science fiction movie. I would call it more of a, a fantasy than anything else, mm-hmm. which the the whole space travel at the end where he's in the his little terrarium, if you will, I, I can't look at that as science fiction because there's no... Well, there's no true science involved in that particular portion. It's more like you take a picture out of Narnia or a, a section out of Oz and, and encapsulate it in a bubble and send it up into space. And it's more fantasy than anything else. And I, 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 so I would argue with calling it a science fiction. Love story, definitely. Drama, beyond a doubt. Period piece, I wouldn't even go there because the yeah. the period part of it is actually a, a the story within the story. You know, it's the book that she writes to to you know basically tell her husband, "Hey, snap the f out of it. Let's you know come on back to reality and be with me." So, and then too the the part that would be historical, you consider historical. Uh, Aronofsky even went on record as saying, "You know." We didn't aim to make this historically accurate. We just wanted this to add to the fantasy feel of the film. And then if you look at um, the past and the future and how they include the Tree of Life, you know, it's it's adding to the fantasy element just because it's drawing so heavily from different mythologies. You know, there's some Norse mythology, Mayan mythology, Buddhist uh, philosophy. So when you combine all those, um, the only thing I can think of that might be uh, borderline science fiction is the neuroscience part, but you have researchers working on that stuff all Absolutely. the time. So to so, me, it's yeah. not one of those things that's way out there that's no, going to make people say shot. that's not believable. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nice to see uh, Ethan Supley, the heavy kid from Blow. Yeah, yeah. and my name was Earl in an actual like like a serious, serious role. role. God, I he mean, lost yeah, so much weight. I guess I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he's you know. I I saw him and I was like, wait a minute. 
I know that guy. He usually plays a dumbass. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't. I mean, he I mean, he didn't have a whole lot of part in this film necessarily, but he was there definitely in the the research scenes and the the surgery scenes and whatnot. And so I think that uh yeah, I mean, that was just weird. <laughs> it was very strange. Yeah. I guess he was in uh he was in American History X too. I forgot about that. He was, was he? the white supremacist oh, that was Oh, that's friends right. With, that's right. Yeah. With Edward Norton. Mhm. One thing I've wondered about too and, and this is touching upon one of uh, Stu's earlier points about there may not be a hook or that it, this film doesn't seem to have everything there. Even though I really do like this film, I feel like even though Aronofsky says that you know this is arguably his, his favorite um, just because of how personal it is, I almost feel like with the restrictions he got, this isn't necessarily his full vision. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they recorded enough to make a director's cut, but I feel like... Um, the most interesting part of the film that didn't get explored uh, would probably be in the past the Inquisitor and the Queen and exactly what their conflict was. Because you got a little bit of, you know, the religious base of the Inquisitor and the Queen is looked at as a kind of heretic for wanting, you know, immortality. But they didn't really capitalize on that a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I love the the scene where the people are upside down being dropped. I was like, yeah, that's... That's gruesome. That's some proper Hellraiser suffering. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that that was the Spanish Inquisition yeah. at that mm-hmm. time. I mean, that's what they I mean, they did sick stuff like that. And the whole self-flagellation of the the high inquisitor and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, come on. I I don't even know why I get it. It was part of the novel. It was part of her story or whatever that she was writing. But I almost thought that that was almost – and I again, touching on your point, there's got to be more there. It's almost – that was almost a distraction from everything else. They could have cut that self-flagellating part out unless they were trying to say that maybe – our hero Tommy is a little bit like that. He's beating himself up trying to find this cure or whatever if you want to th- go a little deeper with that imagery and whatnot. But otherwise, I just think they he put that in for shock value because that is always just such a dumb and horrific thing that people used to do and maybe still do. I don't know. Maybe there are still those out there that do that very physical act and yet I, I I just I don't know. I don't I don't know what kind of a place it had in there. They could have they could very well have just told the story. He could have just told the story without having that in there and it would have made just as much sense to me. Yeah, maybe he used it to bring you into the time and remind you yes this used to happen but what you said ben i didn't want to forget about this uh warner brothers and fox refused to let him make a commentary for the dvd release so yeah, he, he made his own in his living room <laughs> that's just dedication. wonderful like i can't imagine if it reminds me of david fincher and the whole alien 3 debacle like i can't imagine <laughs> if you know a movie comes out and it has your stamp on it especially if you become what aronofsky or, or fincher have been and there's this whole you know, idea and this whole vision in the world, put your name on it because your name is on it, but you know, like, this is not what I wanted. And be- what led up to that is just political Hollywood machine hoo-ha, and that would be that would be really upsetting. So I, I would love to see the commentary in his living room. I'm interested, too, to see the, uh, if, if there's a copy available somewhere, the graphic novel for The Fountain, which is really important because there's a graphic novel that came out before the movie. This uh, graphic novel was based on the original screenplay and would probably contain the complete ideas. So that'd probably be a good source 
for us or anybody out there to see if there really was more of a vision. Right. Because Aronofsky's whole point of this graphic novel was, well, the studio shelved this. Yes, I do want to make this film, but if for some reason this gets derailed again, at least I can use this artistic statement for something. Right. So I'd actually like to track it down. It, it says uh, in the limited places that I've looked it up that it was, you know, uh, limited run, but you can snag some stuff like this, you know, through reprints and things like that. So I'd actually be interested to track yeah. a copy down. That would be cool. When I, when I was reading all my different reviews and thoughts and reinterpretations that other people had of this film, it almost made me appreciate it more. Just uh, a movie that, you know, we've talked about before movies where the director or the screenwriter has written something in or you've seen something that you hate or love so much but if somebody like that is able to evoke an emotion like that in you that's certainly effectiveness it might not be to your liking but there was people that I read that were convinced that it was one long linear story some people one of the um, online film critics thought that the past Tom was part of her book obviously but he found the cure for immortality present Tom did and then Future Tom is also reality, and he's uh, spending his existence trying to get to the star the in Orion's belt. Not Orion's belt. That's Men in Black. Yeah. The galaxy is on Orion's belt, though. I know it's <laughs> yeah, because you. I'm just I'm just saying that's what Frank. Whatever. That's what the little dude inside the big dude's head said. I think generically, uh, the the way it's described in the film, it's just in the Milky Way galaxy. That's that's another thing that's not mentioned, which I'm surprised they didn't. When I looked up Shibulba, which is um, the Mayan underworld that um, Izzy's describing when they're on the rooftop in the present, uh, it can be interpreted as Shibulba, the Mayan underworld, is in the sky in the Milky Way galaxy. But it was also widely believed that there were entrances to Shibulba in caves, which makes more sense with the way the conquistadors enter or I should say, well, just Tom, because his his conquistador friends get killed, the way Tom enters the cave, and then they intertwine the whole first father thing, and then uh, I know the first time I watched the film when future Tom showed up in the past in that lotus position, I was like, what just happened? I know, like seriously, the first time I watched this film, I was confused because I wasn't probably paying enough attention, but the second and third time, I was like, okay, now I get it a little bit better, but still, even though I really like it, I. There, to me, there are at least three or four scenes that seem to be missing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm usually not one for saying, hey, this this needs more. If anything, I'm the type of person who says, you know, this film probably could have been cut down. But I think when you're trying to produce something on this grand of a scale that spans, you know, a thousand or more years, you can add 20 minutes of just a little bit of explanation or um, not even like, hardcore exposition just scenes to add to the narrative that would really help move things along and help people understand i know aronofsky's a challenging filmmaker you know he has kind of that kubrick sense mentality which is i have a vision i'm going to do it whether you like it or not Mm -hmm. but at the same time i mean with great films i I completely understand (laughs) kubrick's films even though there are some jarring scenes that may be confusing to others when you watch it enough you understand so he could it add seem, more. You know, it seems to me that, that 
Fronsky was trying to be too much like Kubrick in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, he falls short in a lot of ways as well. And I think a lot of it had to do, as you were kind of saying, Ben, um, you know, earlier about, you know, the money getting cut in half and really everybody kind of treating, including the studio, treating the story as though it was like a pariah, you know, the redheaded stepchild. And so it's, it's one of those things where it got made. It's not a horrible film. It was not widely liked by people, but it's not a bad movie. It's just one of those movies where you watch it, and if you walk into it thinking that I'm just going to watch this and, and try and enjoy it, and you probably will. Looking for deeper meaning in this movie, probably not the best idea because it is a love story. And, and sure, it's going gonna, it's gonna to throw you at first because of the conquistador scene and then the astronaut, you know, Tommy scene and then... And then into the reality in which the the love story is genuine, you know. I mean, you really do feel, you know, that there's a connection there, even though that Tommy's doing everything in his power to to save his wife and is, you know, again, back to the, you know, basically ignoring her. So, Well, he doesn't strike me as the kind of director that would be dissuaded by negative critical review. No. And... I while I enjoy this movie too. Uh, first, it passed my test of the second viewing, which um, a lot of times I watch a movie once and I get captivated by either lighting or imagery or soundtrack are usually the three that hook me. Like Ben came over last night and we watched It Follows, which I watched it four days ago and like I couldn't get it out of my mind. And it was like a throwback to seventies and eighties slasher. And, like, the cars and fashion and pop culture m- mirrored the 80s. But some of the technologies they used were, like, way in the future. And they kind of used that as a means of uh, disorientation. And y- you didn't really think this took place in our current universe. And there were just, like, seven or eight things in the movie that I was just in love with. And then me and Ben watched it last night. And it w- it wasn't as fantastic. I mean, the elements that I liked were still there. but. It. I mean, yeah, I liked it, but you know, it was it was abstract in a way that the fountain kind of is. But there were too many, there were too many rules for being abstract. It's like, well, it gets yeah. passed if you have sex, but if you die, then it comes back to me. But then if I pass it to you, I'm still going to be followed. So I'm, I, I don't think that one passed the test. But the soundtrack, I'll watch it any time for the imagery and the soundtrack. The soundtrack's alone. good, but you brought lighting. Um, that's one of the stronger points of this film. I know that sounds weak when you're discussing a film. It almost sounds like you're trying to make something up. But I like how almost every film, sorry, every scene in this film has that kind of golden light on it. It's almost like you're inside of Shibulba no matter what the tense is. So even though, um, in my interpretation, the past and the future aren't necessarily real in this movie, um, it makes you feel like there is an air of of death because if you're connecting things to this, uh, I guess constellation or this one uh, nebula, it's a nebula. nebula. It's a nebula. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not, I made yeah. I made the same mistake that Tommy did in the film. Uh, <laughs> if you connect everything to this nebula and this underworld, I think it kind of gives everything a more linear slant. <laughs> yeah, because you feel like okay, these elements make more sense in combination than they do when you're just thinking to yourself, why are they jumping back between all these scenes? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you go to the movies because you want to be taken out of your element and because you want to be taken on an adventure and taken out of your 
seat and out of the theater and out of reality if right you will. and this movie definitely did that but i can see how you know the average couple the average population goes to see this movie and it's like yeah i think it's about time travel let's go see it like they're probably gonna hate it because a lot of people and not that we're like you're probably not gonna understand it i mean you'll probably understand it but uh, you know like we talked about earlier you, it, it's hard to market this movie for what it really is and especially you know the only thing that was really mainstream that Aronofsky did before this was Requiem for a Dream, um, which was a very disturbing film. Very, very visceral. I mean, you have these kids from New York who are in the business of shooting up, selling any kind of drug. I mean, there's a lot of heroin in there, of course, but um, it's like a twisted take on the American dream almost. So I guess uh, I enjoyed watching his leap into something more spiritual. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you say to somebody, I mean, I can only imagine what the studio execs were thinking when you said, so this movie is about death. Pause. No, it's Blink. Not. <laughs> but it's almost like it's almost like death and how it's an integral part of the cycle of life. I mean, everything has to pass on eventually. I mean, if you go into the future, I mean, at some point this planet probably won't be here so if you think backward and you narrow it down to yourself and yourself not being here well obviously you have family you have friends and they're important you don't want them to suffer but at the same time you think well this has happened since the dawn of man so who am i to say that my passing is more or less important than anyone else you know for a lot of people that's really difficult and i can i can understand that but i think this film did a good job of dealing with it in actual ways by showing Tommy and Izzy's um, interactions and also in more symbolic ways with past and present, even though... With the tree and... Even though I wanted to see more of those things and more yeah. scenes. Yeah, I, I saw some still image of just the created bubble and the tree inside, which was a real set piece, and then it was just a giant white screen, like 25-foot-long... Uh, green screen uh, mm. that they just projected it onto, which was pretty great. I mean, I wouldn't have. I mean, if somebody watches this and they were expecting just a straight love story, I think if the past and the future were taken out and they just kind of made it one love story in in present day, I don't think that would have been necessarily better. I mean, their chemistry was good, but it wasn't like unforgettable. It wasn't, you know, one of my favorite. Hollywood like movie couples that I've ever seen in my no, life. No, 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 no. Well, there, there's not enough of the two of them together to actually get that chemistry really built. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there's there's very seldom. It, it's more about his journey than her death than anything else. His journey, his ability to let go, and then finally later on at the very end and the very again the very 2001 esque scenes where he is finally coming to terms with his wife's death and maybe having that moment of realization that 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 one moment that that changes everything and so allows him to grieve allows him to move on allows him to really believe that you know there there's a purpose behind everything and maybe death isn't such a bad thing but i i don't think that throughout the entire thing that they ever have enough time on screen together to really build that relationship necessarily yeah. at least not for the audience now we know the relationship is there 
but it wasn't that that was secondary to mm-hmm. his quest. It really makes me wish I was around for you mentioned 2001 and I know that was released to mixed critical review but you know that was another real subjective ending and a lot of his were I mean the shining and what the last two the last 5 seconds of that film and then you know clockwork orange which we've done with that with that sequence it would be interesting to know how the idea of not seeing a concrete ending how that's changed over 30 years you know no kidding and i think the big factor in that is the way that they're marketed because we talked i think it was like a month ago i don't remember what film it was but we were talking about how you know the the trailer world has become such a competitive market with like vimeo and vine and i've YouTube. come to hate the trailer world i know very much so well yeah. my my biggest example um or I should say my most recent example would be Ant-Man. I really did enjoy the film, but if oh, yeah. you watch the trailer, they give away uh, a pretty big part of the main battle scene at Absolutely. the end. You're just like, yeah. if if I hadn't seen this, I would have been more blown away or surprised, pleasantly surprised. But just five seconds in a trailer can really spoil things. And I don't know if the the execs in these studios think that you know they need to include x amount of footage in here to draw people in i tend to gravitate toward more minimal trailers like the the first trailer for ash versus the evil dead mm-hmm. like the very minimal one is just him and pretty much like a chainsaw and dripping blood i was like okay that's a good first trailer and then the newer one obviously we're not talking about a movie here we're talking about a tv series still a trailer um they give away enough but they don't give away everything you have a clear idea of where they could be headed and you're engaged as a potential viewer of the series whereas with a lot of movies i'm just like well do i need to watch this movie now because you just gave away the whole thing yeah Yeah, no kidding (laughs) i I think content is real dependent too on because i'm uh, you know i'm kind of an impulsive person and even though i don't want to see anymore because i don't want to be spoiled i probably still at one point i'm just gonna watch it because i want as much exposure as i can get but with this movie, it could really serve to hurt it, and I'm sure that it did because people went into this movie, no doubt, thinking that it was something completely different. And see, that's yeah, exactly. And, and if so, and you know, if somebody would have been told, oh, just so you know, this is kind of a mind-bending movie, and you might not get it, you probably wouldn't have had those people seeing the movie to begin with. And I won't talk about Jurassic World because I'm tired of talking about that because that trailer <laughs> just drove me insane. The um, six-minute Jurassic World trailer. Jeez, Louise! There was, <laughs> there's one that's out for uh, the man from Uncle. Oh yeah, which yeah. Uh, Guy Ritchie, another one of my favorite directors. He yeah. did Snatch was the first thing I saw. I mean, it's the whole movie is like a slow motion punch to the stomach. So, <laughs> the man from Uncle. It's another reboot, but I I don't think that you're gonna watch it and feel like you shouldn't see the movie anymore they show some good action scenes but that's all the movie's going to be i wouldn't you know i would imagine most people don't know the man from uncle yeah i mean you know most people just don't i mean it was thrown in in the 60s as kind of a an answer to you know the the snarky get smart and the the ultra serious james bond and everything else and it was kind of somewhere in between and the 
it, it when I saw the trailer for the Man from Uncle, I wasn't blown away by it. I wasn't like, oh, I've got to see this. You know, he was like, I'll probably watch it when it comes out on you know Netflix or whatever it is because it will come out on Netflix. It's not going to blow the theaters away. It's not going to you know blow everybody away necessarily, but it'll probably be a fun watch. Well, speaking of Ant Man, so I, Amy and I, my girlfriend, uh, watched Ant Man when we were on vacation in Alabama. And here's an example of a trailer that's done well. No one will probably be surprised by me saying this, but one of the trailers attached attached to Ant Man was Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Oh yeah, and I got goosebumps seeing it oh, in theaters. Yes. It's mm-hmm. just not that. I mean, it's I I got goosebumps when I saw it on my computer screen mm-hmm. for the first time. But you're introduced to new characters, and you have a voiceover from uh, a well-known, established character. Also, the inclusion. Very briefly, of well-known characters. You all know mm-hmm. who I'm probably talking about, Chewbacca and Han Solo. Of so course. it's a really great mixture, and whoever put that trailer together deserves like 9,000 awards. There probably aren't, there might be awards for trailers out there. I, maybe I need to do oh, some sure research there on that. There's but awards for everything else. There's probably a yeah. trailer yeah. For, yeah. That, for that award show. Yeah, yeah. But it's <laughs> probably way too long. Just, just the way that the trailer evolves, you can tell that whoever put that together has love for the material. And that they also know that they can't spoil everything or else everybody's going to be very angry. Mm-hmm. Well, not everybody, well, we but most people. Know. We still don't know what the plot of the movie is. Yeah, we don't. No one I, knows what I'm the glad. plot of the movie is. I'm and, very glad. and all we've mm-hmm. seen are just snapshots, basically, and the, some brief action sequences. And, and so we really don't know how these characters are all coming back together again. Um, and, and, and I... I'm exactly the same way, Ben. I I saw that pop up on the screen, and I was like, you know, I I mean, my daughter's like, uh, Dad, 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 oh, you're going to just chill out, you know, but it was hilarious. But uh, it's, yeah, I mean, again, it's fun going to the movies, and it's fun seeing a trailer, so long as it doesn't give the the whole thing away. And and, uh, you know what? I I think it's interesting you mentioned the Ant-Man trailer, because the first couple of trailers I saw for the Ant-Man didn't impress me at all. I didn't want to see the movie almost because, well, number one, that I think that superhero is ridiculous. But number two, <laughs> yes. truly, I mean, it's just completely ridiculous. But number two, I was just unimpressed with with the everything that I saw, and, and it wasn't the one that you saw where it gave away part of that final final scene or anything, Ben. It was just it was it was short. It was to the point, and but again. But I did go and see it, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. There are some there are some real good moments in that particular movie that made it a good summer watch, definitely. But um, I'll see it again, absolutely, and it's because it's part of the Marvel universe, and it's be- because Ant Man eventually will probably be one of the Avengers as they cycle through the different characters that have always you know that have been in the Avengers. It'll be interesting to see how he gets incorporated. So, yeah, the trailers uh, sometimes what annoys me is when you see a scene they do this in horror movies a lot you tend to remember the scary scenes and trailers for horror movies and then the whole you know you think a character dies and you're like nope i remember the trailer they live but a lot of times they release a trailer before the post-production is done right, so right. me and anna were talking about force awakens anna's a huge star wars fan which is so wonderful we're trying to decide you know is he on the millennium falcon is that what he's referring to home and then we both kind of realized that that was probably filmed just for the trailer because they knew that they needed to get Harrison Ford somewhere in there. It's interesting you bring that part up because I think that maybe, you know, because I was thinking, what what did he say? We're home. You know, what 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 was that all about? And, 
you know, I know it's open to debate for everybody, but my thought was they're Tatooine. But he never really called Tatooine home. It was just that's where, you know, Jabba was, and so he was there a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know that he ever called that home. Um, If anything, the Millennium Falcon was home to him, he and Chewbacca, and so I I don't know. It's interesting. But he's Corellian, so he came from the Corellian system, and, you know, and, and so that's where he originally came from, and we never even saw that, yeah. ever. I well, mean, and it's really gave me pause for thought when he said, we're home, because we're obviously not from the same place. No. We are obviously don't have the same city of origins. Yeah, so. Don't worry, everything will be explained in the Han Solo origin film. Yeah, right. I'm I'm interested to see which separate films will actually move forward, because... There's been talk of a Boba Fett film. Um, there's been talk of what I just mentioned, the Han Solo film. Right. I think they just named a director for um, episode nine. So seven is obviously J.J., uh, but Rogue One is not part of the series, and that's the first spinoff because that's by Gareth Edwards, the guy that did Godzilla and this really cool indie invasion film called Monster, which is on Netflix, which is absolutely fantastic. So then Ryan Johnson, I think is his name, the guy that did Looper. Oh, that was the Bruce Willis and... Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, so um, Ryan Johnson directed some of my favorite episodes of Breaking Bad. He did some of my favorite episodes of Breaking Bad, and he's also doing episode eight. Cool. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, very much so. I watched this really random, under-the-radar sci-fi horror movie last night called Extraterrestrial. I'd never heard of it, never seen the trailer. Got like a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was like, awesome, let's watch this. And that's the best way, theoretically, that's the way I like to watch every movie is with no expectations. Well, so yeah, it was the second time I've watched Fountain. I'd watch it again with somebody who... uh, had never seen it before. It definitely sparks good conversation, and if nothing else, just to hear somebody else's interpretation. So generally any movie, even if I hated it, if it can stay in your mind long after you watch it, if you're thinking about it after it's done, I think it's a pretty effective film. It's definitely hard to market, but I enjoyed it. I would watch again, it again, I think that if they had been more realistic or been more true to their marketing, then I think more people would have approached the film without feeling betrayed later on, you know. I think you hit it on the nose earlier, Jimmy, when you were saying, I watched, I, when I saw the trailer, I thought this was a time travel. I, I, thought, I thought this was an immortality. I thought this was a, these two, you know, revisiting their love throughout time. But no, it's not that. And and I think that that was a bit of false advertising, a bit of clever false advertising, if you will. But unfortunately, it then leaves a bad taste in your mouth after you get done watching the film. Visually speaking, gorgeous. The acting was good, but not great. But again, the story. The story has... It, it's it's a simple story tried to make, be made more difficult than what it needs to be, and I think that, uh, and I think you Ben hit it on the head. It's probably a much longer story that that's out there for a director's cut that needs to be told, if it's going to make sense to people, you know. And, and the regular old garden variety movie watcher is going to be either bored to tears, confused, or just upset that this is not what they thought it was going to be, regardless of the heavy hitters, you know, that are in it. So I, I just. No, I can't say. I can honestly say, Jimmy, I probably wouldn't go out of my way to watch it again. If it was on and there was nothing else on, I might watch it. But 
I might just turn off the TV then too. So time to go to bed. Time to go to bed. Exactly. I just need to hunt down the graphic novel because I I do watch this film periodically, but not religiously. If that makes any sense, it's not like I'm going to watch this film every week, but I'll generally watch it at least once or twice a year because I feel like it's it's really visually stimulating and it's almost a good palate cleanser if I don't know what movie to grab or to go online and stream it's like i'm feeling a little bit philosophical today so i'll grab the fountain and i'm in the same mind with jimmy actually i want to watch this movie with um with amy just so i can see what she thinks of it because i think she might enjoy it because of the um fantasy elements and maybe the romantic elements too so it's i think it's a good movie for concentrating and just focusing on the film um, if you're not into the type of film that will stretch you and you're not in the mood for a type of film that will stretch you, by all means, don't watch this no, film because it'll all. it'll stretch not even a little. It'll stretch your mind a little bit. Um, and like I said before, I, I think there are probably at least a few scenes missing that could really add to this and make it a masterpiece. I think it's really, really good. I don't think it's a masterpiece, even though it may be arguably my favorite Aronofsky film. So I would recommend it to anyone who's into fantasy or philosophy. Just know what you're about to watch. Yeah, just just know that if you see a trailer, well, it's just like any movie these days. You can cut a trailer to make a movie look like anything. I mean, there's uh, almost, an, I think there's an entire YouTube channel dedicated to that. They recut trailers. It'll take like a horror film to make it look like a buddy cop film right you know so (laughs) like with a lot of movies um don't really buy into trailers maybe read a few articles about it try to avoid you know hardcore spoilers even though i think even if you knew what happened in the film you actually need to see it and that'll be the ultimate test i think and i would say if there's any inkling that you might like it after the first viewing watch it again because you'll probably understand it a lot better yeah so um Last thing I'll say, in 2009, Aronofsky said this in the reflection on the reception of the fountain. There are a lot of fountain haters out there referring to the Venice Film Festival where it was actually booed. <laughs> booed by right. critics and then yeah. applauded by fans who gave it a standing ovation. Exactly. Right? The film's about the fact that it's okay that we die and we should come to terms with it. But many, many people don't want to think about that, so why pay money for a meditation on losing someone you love? Everything about Western culture denies that. He also believes the film was released at the wrong time. It was pre-Obama, smack in the middle of Paris Hilton time. But there's been a serious turn now. People are starting to realize that the party's over, finally, so we can stop thinking about the culture of superficiality and start to remember that there are other things going on. I think what he really meant to say is it shouldn't have been released right before Thanksgiving. Yeah, not really a family-friendly. No. Seems, it seems more like a middle-winter release to me. February release. Yeah, February would be like, okay. Valentine's Day. All right, so you've been listening to 90.7 WAZU. If you want to hear more podcasts or see the things we've come up with, you can go to movieshowtheater.com or visit our Facebook page at Movie Show Theater. Next Tuesday, we're doing Nightcrawler. Yeah. Not to be confused with... Yeah, we're doing Nightcrawler. Not to be confused with something you'd use to fish or the mutant from X-Men. Even though that would be also... That would be cool. That would be cool. I like Nightcrawler. So so look forward to that. And until next Tuesday, I'm Jimmy Malone. I'm Stuart Randolph. I'm Ben Snowden. And this is Movie Show Theater.